This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Welcome to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. This is your host, Dr. Linda Bluestein, here with Dr. Paldeep Atwal, board-certified clinical and medical biochemical geneticist and director of Atwal Clinic for Genomic and Personalized Medicine. He completed his genetics fellowship at Stanford University and subspecialty biochemical genetics fellowship at Baylor College of Medicine before serving as medical director for the Individualized Medicine Clinic at Mayo Clinic in Florida. He has a longstanding interest in rare and undiagnosed disease, including the use of multiple concurrent genomics platforms to provide a diagnosis to patients. He conducts translational research with the goal of discovering new genetic syndromes and designing new therapies for genetic disease. Through his work, he co-led the discovery of biparental mitochondrial inheritance in humans, discovered two new genetic connective tissue syndromes, co-developed an untargeted metabolic screening test for inborn errors of metabolism, and published extensively on human genetics with over 70 peer-reviewed publications to date. In this episode of Bendy Bodies, Dr. Atwal and I chatted about the genetic influencers of joint mobility and possible explanations for why all bendy people are not alike. Other topics covered include how epigenetics are more like an accelerator pedal than a light switch, and how dietary modifications may influence DNA repair, especially amongst those with obesity, diabetes, and or cardiovascular disease. Dr. Atwal, thank you so much for joining me today on Bendy Bodies. Yeah, th- thanks for having me. I appreciate taking the time to speak. It is so great to have you on the show. Let's start out by talking about the incidence of hypermobility disorders. And I would like to know, compared to the general population, dancers and other flexibility artists like gymnasts, they're known to have a higher incidence of hypermobility and hypermobility disorders which is the umbrella term that we use to describe people with symptoms related to joint hypermobility. Can you start out by telling us about the different genetic and non-genetic reasons why someone might be bendy, which is the term we use to describe people who have a greater than average range of motion? Yeah, yeah, happy to. So I think, yeah, bendy, yeah. So we we can talk about a couple of different things there. So the first thing is, non-genetics just in general if you think about a population of people there's variation in that population so there's an average level of flexibility or bendiness right and uh, and that tends to follow what we call this bell-shaped curve or normal distribution so some most people will be in the middle of that so there's some people that will be really inflexible so they'll be really stiff and there will some people who are really flexible and that's that's just a normal variation in a, in a population. Now, there are things that influence that even in those populations. For example, there's differences between males and females. So on average, males tend to be less flexible than females on average. So there's some males that are more flexible than females, of course. Um, and there's reasons for that as well, things like testosterone and underlying um, hormonal dif- differences. Um, that's a... Uh, higher, you know, that's a more kind of population, higher level. And then we get into the genetics of things. So if you think about two types of genetics, there's single gene genetics, 
or Mendelian after Gregor Mendel, and then there's complex uh, genetics uh, you, that really talk about interactions between multiple different genes together that may influence a certain trait. Uh, now, single gene is one that we are most uh, familiar with and, and work with the most in, uh, when it comes to the practice of clinical genetics and, and medicine. And we know that there are genes that influence that, um, for example, the Ehlers-Danlos genes, the Marfan, and other what we call heritable disorders of connective tissue. These are genes that work on, uh, that are involved in the structural proteins and the connective in the connective tissue, the collagens, the fibrillins, etc. And changes in them can influence how tightly those collagens, etc., are bound together, and that can translate to joint laxity. The other part of that is there might be small changes in, in uh, a number of genes, let's say 50 genes, 100 genes, and if they're, all of those genes are changed in a certain way, now we're talking about complex genetics um, or complex traits, uh, then you get uh, you, that influence a certain trait, whether in this case, flexibility. So let's say there's 100 genes that, for example, there's, let's say there's 100 genes that are involved in how, how flexible you are. If 90 out of those 100 all have a certain, certain change in one way, that'll make you more flexible. Whereas if they have it another way, it might make you less flexible. And, and each gene has a tiny amount of influence, but on aggregate, it's what, it, uh, how they're skewed, if that makes sense. Uh, and so that's one of the theories of behind hypermobile EDS essentially is perhaps it's not a single gene, perhaps it's a complex trait that, that has multiple genes involved. So anyway, I'll stop there. That's a, that's a lot. So happy to talk more about those things. That, that really is a very helpful explanation though, because I think that when I spoke to you before for the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast, and you were explaining about phenotypic versus genotypic expression. And uh, that really helped me to understand why there's so many people that may look like they have um, a, a variant of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which we know is the more common um, heritable disorder of connective tissue, right? But they maybe don't because of what you're explaining now in terms of this complex um, genetics, that maybe it's not a single gene, but a whole host of genes interacting together, if I'm not understanding you correctly. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And if you think about genetics, we, we have, in humans, we have around 20,000 genes. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a big step to suggest that those other genes interact with that gene that might be causing, uh, causing a particular condition in some way, such that even if you see it in families all the time, we call it variable expression. Um, in that, if they all have, if, if there's a genetic condition that runs in the family, let's say siblings or, or, or parent and child, they might manifest the condition differently. So, what's, one might be more severe than the other, one might be less severe, etc. And the question then is, well, why is, why is that the case if they both have the exact same genetic change in that gene? And it's other influencers of, of that, uh, uh, the, how it manifests. So other genes, other, uh, there's other mechanisms such as epigenetics, which I think we might talk about later. So, so it's not, it's, you know, everything's working with each other. It's like a big melting pot. And it's not, uh, uh, we like to think of it all separate, but it's, it's much more interlinked and connected than some people like to think about, let's see. 
Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and can also help us to understand why we're people that you see, people that I see that um, clearly have some hypermobility disorder, but they, so they have similarities, but yet they look, they can look so different from each other, even within a family. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so let's talk about epigenetics, actually. Let's just jump right into that. Can you sure. explain to us what epigenetics is, um, how that might influence genetic expression, and how people who are bendy can use, or, or people who aren't, but in general, just how can we use that to our advantage? Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about epigenetics. So epigenetics as uh, one of the main mechanisms to control gene expression. So the concept of gene expression is the idea that you have genes like uh, you know, textbooks or recipes, and sometimes you'll, you'll be using them, and sometimes you won't be. And also, sometimes you'll be using them a lot, and sometimes you'll be using them just a little bit. And the way the body controls how much it's using them or if it's using them at all is through control mechanisms like epigenetics. Um, so it's, it's a way to control the expression or the functionality of a gene. People think of epigenetics like a light switch that it switches a gene off or it switches a gene on, and that's it. There's like a binary you know, function off or on. And we're, whereas in reality, it's more complicated like that uh, than that. It's more it's better to think of it like an accelerator pedal and that a gene can, you know, be cruising along at three or you can put it, uh, you know, you can go to up to 50 or you can, you know, really put the foot down and have full, ex you know, maximal expression of that, of that gene. And epigenetics is the way that that, that is controlled. Um, does that, does that make sense? Yes, it does. That does make sense. Okay, I like the yeah. idea of rather than the light switch, the accelerator yes pedal because yes. we know that in terms of nutrition and exercise and these yes. are a couple of things that that influence exactly and that, that was what right. i was just going to go into so thanks thanks for that so, okay. <laughs> so so um so then then uh, to answer your second part of your question how do how can uh, uh, we use epigenetics to our advantage or you know bendy people so we know that there's a number of things that influence our gene expression. Exercise, you mentioned exercise, you mentioned nutrition. These are both is that we can quite significantly influence our epigenetic expression, uh, epigenetic uh, control mechanisms. So if we um, do, do the right things uh, from a nutritional perspective and, and um, uh, exercise and uh, conditioning perspective, that influences the DNA expression in our body, which is an amazing thing to think about. Uh, and it's, people may not realize it has such a profound effect, but that's truly what's happening. That's why you're, you see the changes you know, in, the, in the weeks or months that are, uh, from making these kind of um, changes in nutrition or exercise. It's truly causing a change in your uh, DNA expression, which is, I think, uh, amazing. That that really is amazing. I think that that a lot of people um, get very frustrated because they'll they'll read the headlines of different studies and they'll say, "Oh, but people keep flip flopping on nutrition and what we should be doing." But if you really think it, 
if you really look at the big picture, most of the messages have stayed very consistent over, over the years, you know, avoid yes. sugar and white flour. Yes. And, you know, we yes. want lots of polyphenols and, you know, plants yes. in general are, are good. Um, so, yes. so, you know, I think that part of the difficulty, if I'm understanding this correctly, is that yes, nutrition matters greatly and affects our DNA, but it's just a hard thing to study it's hard to conduct those studies and to really be able to demonstrate correlations because of the, you know, humans don't remember super well. Like I can't remember what I had to eat necessarily yesterday, much less for the past five years. And, and that. Yeah, right. Right. And so let's talk about nutrition for a minute. Uh, there's, well, firstly, there's a lot of misinformation out of there and it's, that is unfortunate. Uh, this, to your point, uh, highly processed foods that, all of the micronutrients and everything is pulled out and it's, you know, the end result of a, you know, you know, of a, a sugar load that tastes good very quickly. And, <laughs> uh, and, and, but doesn't really fill doesn't actually provide you any nutritional value. And so the first thing to do is separate calorific value or calorific content and nutritional value or nutritional content. So when you look at a food, you should look at the balance between nutritional use and calorific use. Now, in, in the past, when, you know, before industrialization, before, refer, certainly well before refrigeration, there was a calorific deficit uh, and, uh, that humans experienced such that it was actually hard to find enough food, right? Uh, you, that 15 sure. to 1,500 to 2,000 calories a day was, was a challenge. Um, certainly in the, in the U.S., we, we have no such challenge at all, right? You can find that in, in one meal, one meal uh, no problem. Um, so, so, but we have a genetic programming that still craves highly calorifically dense foods, right? Um, so we have to kind of overcome that a, a little bit and really focus on the nutritional aspect of those foods rather than the calorific density. We really actually don't need calorific density in our food because we have so much food available. We should we should actually try even limit the calorific density and, and focus on nutritional density, and that, that actually fills us up more. We'll actually get more full with that. There's a, there's also a great study uh, that's come out recently, and you may have been following this. I certainly been following it. There was some literature uh, and documentation of things like intermittent fasting and. You know, people talk, look at all these different types of diets, the ketogenic diet, all of that. Um, sure. And uh, now that, to your point, on people are able to track certain um, people are able to track how they're eating, what they're eating, when they're eating, with apps and all, and other things that there's a bit more awareness. I think um, there were some. You know, there's always fad diets and some and crazes that come and go. And the latest one is this ketogenic diet. Now, I think, and it's the you know I don't think certainly don't think it's the answer, but I think the a lot of people have this beneficial effect with it in a short term because it's probably the first time they've been out of glycolysis in their lives that they can certainly they can, they can, they can remember it in that they're using. Uh, they're not using glucose or, or stored glucose in the form of glycogen as their primary source of fuel, and they're switching to fatty acid oxidation, um, which is, if you think about it, the maximum time they, you know, if someone get, wakes up, they have, they have a 
cereal or some other uh, thing with lots of carbohydrate. Then they have lunch a few hours later. Then they, then they get home. They might have a snack. Then they have dinner. They might have a snack just before bed. They're never really out of a time where they are not getting a carbohydrate intake. And, and when they are, they've got plenty of black swords to, to, um, to ensure they, uh, they're never really need to get a glycolysis. So that's really the, that's really why people notice such an effect with it. But the, there's a great review article that um, a couple of months ago came out in the New England Journal on inter- intermittent fasting and its, uh, its role in, uh, in health and, and aging. And, and it really looked at that switching between the glycolysis and fatty acid oxidation as the, the, the true benefit in terms of expression of uh, DNA repair type uh, our DNA protection type uh, molecules, sirtuins, all of these type of things. It's a great paper. I would encourage everyone to read it, even though it's very medical. <laughs> and, and, and I'm sure there's some people who are going to go, wow, I've tried the intermittent fasting. I've tried the ketogenic diet. I, yeah. and, I, and I definitely have noticed some, some improvement, but there's going to be some words in there that they're going to say, oh, I don't know what, what some of these things mean. If, if in my um, view, what I'm thinking of is, is, you know, when I talk to my patients about, you know, uh, that they, they say, oh, I have such a sweet tooth and I just, I, you know, mm-hmm. I crave sugar and stuff like that. It seems like once you switch to this, this, you know, uh, way of eating where you're yes. eliminating a lot of carbohydrates and you're focusing on, like you said, nutrient density and, you know, um, and, and also having periods of time that you're, that you're not eating the intermittent fasting. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going 12 hours without eating or, you know, um, depending on yes. the guidelines, 12, 14, whatever hours with, without eating, just drinking water and maybe having some green tea or something, but you're not consuming yes. anything that's going to, um, nothing with calories, right? That, um, that I think it seems like that really helps to minimize. It does. Yeah. Those cravings. It does. Yeah. It does. And, and, and one of the biggest things people need to do is be aware of, uh, how they're feeling and why they're feeling it. Often the first thing is they're actually uh, requiring more water intake when they feel hunger. So seeing what a glass of water does for their hunger levels. And then the second thing is, it's interesting to note that, um, and I, I feel this as well actually, is you're hungriest when you're eating, which is really interesting. So, so when you start eating is when you actually become the most hungry. Uh, and you want to eat more the most rather than when you're you know you've gone f- five hours without a meal uh, which is which is which doesn't make sense when you think about it uh, like just uh, ostensibly but but it, it really is really is the case for many people that is very very interesting huh that is very interesting and and to me when uh, when you really think about how pro-inflammatory sugar is and how many conditions that we have are, are so related to inflammation that, um, you know, to break that cycle of the sugar carbohydrate, uh, you know, cravings is so important, can make such a significant difference for people. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. So, so can you tell us a little bit about why the prevalence of hypermobility disorders um, seems so much greater in females than males? Yeah, it's very interesting. And I think, the way I think about that and the way I explain it is back to this um, population norms and the bell-shaped curves. So if you think about the, one of the prime manifestations 
of well let, let me just say that when you say that the um, prevalence of hypermobility or let's talk about the prevalence of hypermobile eds so just eds in general uh when it comes to the uh, hypermobile type the the manifestation primarily is on as hypermobility right uh, mm-hmm. first uh, the, uh, the, the first thing that people notice um, or maybe they don't notice it but it, it's always there if you think about those populations of males and the population of males and females men on average are less, less flexible um, so they're on average not as bendy as, as women just the differences in hormones primarily differences in testosterone level um, now to compound that and it's important to realize it is a compound effect. Because of that difference in testosterone level, men on, men on average have more lean muscle mass than, than, than women. So if you think about the second most common thing, pain, right? So you get loose joints. Because the muscles are having to work harder to support those loose joints, you get this manifestation of pain and fatigue. Now, if you're less flexible and you have more muscle mass to support those joints, you're going to manifest less, which is also some of the um, ways we treat it, right? We encourage people to uh, increase their physical conditioning. So th- that for me is the reason that men seem to manifest less than women. It's purely, uh, um, well, it's not purely, but a big contributor certainly is this hormonal difference between men and women that uh, causes less flexibility and more, more lean muscle mass. Sure, and that would fit too with the um, onset of menstrual cycles in females mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. often a time where they start to have yes. more problems. So when they're, you know, when they're, uh, you know, less than ten or or whatever. Of course, now since young ladies are starting to often have their periods at a younger age, but um, they they are they're especially when it comes to something like dance, they're bendy and it's actually seen as an advantage. And then they start to get their menstrual periods and they start to have that's when they start to have pain. And I'm, I'm so always surprised at the patients that, um, you know, started having quite a bit of pain at a, at a relatively, um, you know, young age. But then if you ask them, well, when did you start your periods? And that often seems to correlate with that. So that's right. And, and, yeah. It's, it's, it's a great point. You're a great, yeah, great point there. And it's the, the hormonal influence is definitely there in both, both ways. Sure. So in terms of genetic testing for people with um, joint hypermobility, um, what types of genetic testing would, do you think is important to consider? And, um, you know, when would you say that's indicated? Yeah, so I think for someone who is presenting with a possible genetic or genetic condition or, or heritable disorder of connective tissue, most of the time, genetic testing is appropriate uh, in that it used to be a very challenging, very expensive, very hard to do genetic testing. And nowadays, to do a large gene panel or even a genome sequence, uh, you know, an exome sequence, shortly probably genome sequence, it's not, it's not that challenging anymore. Uh, there's... Um, insurance coverage for these things there's a uh, um, you know multiple labs that are competing with each other trying to drive down price drive down um, difficulty in access and you know, more patient-friendly reports and 
and um, and you know more availability of of, uh, of counselling and, and interpretation services. So um, so I think the the option for anyone with presenting with one of these should be there. Now whether whether it's a strong option or a strong recommendation depends on their their symptoms. So if someone clearly has uh, symptoms suggestive of a particular type or, or um, severe subtype, like a vascular Ehlers Danlos, I think it should be strongly recommended they get the testing. If someone uh, is, let's say, perhaps a bit later in life, has uh, has kind of self-selected against having one of the severe forms and hasn't had any issues, has a number, has all of the features consistent with perhaps hypermobile, it's less of a concern to do the, the testing. Uh, I'll tend to offer it to people as a, you know, as a, as a reassurance to them if they'd like to do the testing. I don't, I, I believe, you know, I'm strongly advocate uh, I, um, people should have the option to test if they want. Um, there's a personal utility to that. Um, the, the clinical utility may not be as high as the other scenario, but certainly there is a clinical utility as well. Um, so, so I think, Broader testing is the way. You know, the way, if you look at what's happening in medicine, it's broader testing, more um, awareness of the subtle differences, uh, and the trend is is only increasing in that direction. <laughs> and 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 I actually had a patient that I just did whole exome sequencing. I had ordered whole exome sequencing on um, the other day, and I was so happy that the insurance company did approve it, and that the yeah. report came back in a very, um, you know. For, for non-geneticist, a very, a very user-friendly yeah. way. And so it was, and, and the patient was very, um, you know, uh, felt very validated and, and everything. So it, it's, I think it's a, such a helpful thing. And if I, um, if I understand this correctly, it used to be even quite recently that we only had um, really in terms of like, if you wanted to use your insurance, a very limited panel that you could maybe even get approved. And it would often come back negative because, you know, you're, you're having to target a very narrow um, focus, whereas now yes. we're able to, to look at a much broader picture and in many cases, not always, but in many cases, look at a broader picture and get a lot more information. And so it's much more, um, the, the genetic testing that you could do now is much more useful than what you could do even five years ago. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's exactly uh, exactly the point I was trying to make. So thanks. Thanks for, thanks for that. Okay. Okay, good. And so when it comes to um, Ehlers-Danlos syndromes specifically, mm -hmm. um, we know that multiple different types have, have been identified and that we know genetic markers for, for all but the hypermobile type, um, which, which we also know is by far um, the most common type. How much progress has been made on finding the, the markers for hypermobile EDS? And can you just yeah. explain, you know, I, I know we've covered this a little bit, but um, why this process is so challenging? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think, in this sense, I think the progress is a binary function in that we find a gene and then there's progress. And until we define the gene, there's no progress. <laughs> yeah, so, but, but, but there's more, than, more to that. So I'm not being fair. So, so, so the, let's start, uh, what's being done? Well, there's lots of different groups that are getting cohorts of individuals together that have hypermobile EDS or doing genome sequencing and 
and other methods to try and identify some commonality in their genetics that would be you know, a marker or a gene that would be finding it. And lots of people have done that and it's not really worked. Um, and so I'm not sure that's the, you know, I think that's very valuable uh, data um, for a number of reasons, but I'm, I'm less convinced. Uh, well, let me tell you what, what to me, I think the possibilities are. Um, okay. Number one, num num number one, uh, it's not a um, type of genetic change that's readily, readily um, testable by current sequencing methodologies. So I don't want to get too technical here, but currently virtually all testing is done on what is called a massively parallel short read sequencing platform. Um, uh, and people call it next generation sequencing, but I don't like that term because I don't think it's very accurate. It doesn't tell you what's actually happening. Um, mm. So it's imagine the, the gene is broken up into thousands of tiny little 100 base pair um, or 75 to 150 base pair strands. They're all sequenced and they're all stuck back to the game by, uh, you know, and by a computer. Um, and, then, and then that's how you figure, figure out what the sequence is. Now, the problem with that is it's not good at testing for certain types of genetic changes. Certain sizes of deletion in a, in a gene, certain structural rearrangements, insertion deletions, um, complex, complex uh, rearrangements. So all the information right, might be there, but it's not in the normal place. It's actually not very good at detecting that, those, those types of uh, changes. And the other newer sequencing technologies, long read sequencing uh, technologies that are better at that. And um, so I think employing some of those technologies when we're looking at these uh, uh, patients to try and find, uh, is there some structural abnormality there? That's one. Number two, um, it's, it's a post-genetic change. Uh, it's a post, you know, so it's not a DNA level change, it's an RNA uh, a post-transitional change, uh, or it's an epigenetic modifier, right? As we talked about, that's primarily driving this. So that that needs to we need to look at different different things for that proteomics, and metabolomics, and um, you know epigenetic methylation type thing, uh, the methylome. Um, and, the, and the third thing is it's uh, it's not a single gene that's causing it. Back to the earlier point about complex traits, there's multiple genes that are involved and there's some sort of threshold type effect that's causing it. And that's much harder to detect with current, um, you know, at the current level of technology we're at. But, um, uh, the idea is that there's, once you get a certain amount of changes, that, um, you would get this kind of threshold point or crossover point where you'd, you'd manifest the condition. So that's the idea behind this complex traits. There are there are um, there is progress in that in terms of using things like polygenic risk scores to make determination of of risk of things like coronary artery disease, diabetes, etc. So there is a lot of progress there, but that hasn't really been applied to things like you know rare, you know, rare genetic diseases, more common common diseases that have a small genetic component. We do think it is genetic. It does clearly runs in families. It clearly has overlap with other well-defined genetic conditions. So, uh, um, 
you know, I, th I do think it's genetic, but that those are the reasons I, I think there's a gene has not been identified yet. Sure, it's much more complicated than than what what meets the eye. I mean, it, I think a lot <laughs> yeah. of a lot of the information that has been presented to, to us um, is, you know, if they don't meet these new super strict criteria for hypermobile yeah. EDS, <laughs> then, yeah. then therefore it's HSD. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to realize consensus expert opinion for what it is, <laughs> you know, and I don't, you know, I think it's highly valuable and highly useful and I think we should be using it. But I also realize, you know, want to make the point that consensus expert opinion is not a substitute for robust molecular science, right? So, so sure. what I mean by that is uh, once we find a gene for something, whether a consensus of experts thinks someone has the, the condition or not, is becomes secondary to whether they have a pathogenic variant in that gene that perhaps is a expansion of that phenotype or, you know, it's still valuable, but it's, but you, uh, there's a higher level of evidence now with, uh, with the molecular, the molecular findings. That, that, that makes sense. Yeah. I, and, and I, and I know I just threw out the HSD and some people might not know what that, what that is, mm -hmm. but um, so, so real quickly, would you, cause I, there's several things that I want to make sure that we can cover yet. Yeah. Are, are you willing to, to just maybe give a little bit more of an explanation about the consensus uh, criteria for hypermobile EDS? And um, when in 2017, when they introduced this category of hypermobility spectrum disorder, um, you know, mm -hmm. is it possible for you to give just a few sentences yeah. on kind of the significance of that? Yeah, so there, there was a change from before uh, in, t in terms of the, the criteria, diagnostic criteria for hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. It's now part of, you know, part of this hypermobility spectrum disorders and it represents the kind of severe end of it. Uh, but to, to meet the, um, the criteria for the hypermobile EDS, there's a number of different criteria and three major ones, generalized joint hypermobility, and then um, the second criterion is there's uh, two or more of, um, of uh, features such as um, uh, soft or velvety skin, physiogenic papules or um, recurrent abdominal hernia is just an example. Positive family history is a separate one and also separate as um, muscle skittle pain and two or more limbs daily for at least three months. Um, and then the third major criterion is, you know, the absence of a clear other explanation like, you know, rheumatoid arthritis um, uh, or absence of a clear neuromuscular disorder that would cause these, these pains or Marfan syndrome or, um, um, uh, or absence of unusual skin fragility suggestive of another type of EDS. So more of, the, more of a exclusion uh, criteria, make sure you're not missing something else. Um, so it's quite, the idea with, if you look at it, it's a one page form. It, for, to me, the idea is someone who doesn't have that much awareness of Ehlers-Danlos, it's useful for that person to help them feel comfortable in making a diagnosis. So it's intentionally kind of uh, specific and restrictive, if that sense. But remember, we're talking about a complex genetic multi-organ condition that's been condensed down to tick boxes on one page, right? Right. So, 
right? <laughs> There's, we just have to realize that's what, what that's what's happening here. There's obviously going to be major limitations with something with doing anything like that. That that's a that's a great explanation, yeah. and um, I. I also want to make sure to talk about, especially since this, uh, you know, this podcast is, is very much um, focused for, uh, you know, people who are bendy, but, um, you know, might be doing things like, like dance and other, you know, um, athletic and artistic endeavors. And there was a really fascinating article published recently that um, the title was High Prevalence of Connective Tissue Gene Variants in Professional Ballet looking at a, a group of um, dancers at the Houston Ballet. And I was mm. curious if you could comment on that study and its potential significance for other bendy dancers. Yeah, so I'm not that familiar with the, um, that, that study in particular, but I'm happy to, to just talk about it in, in general. Uh, so studies like this, it looks at, uh, you know, it's, it, they're, by design, they're useful in that they look at population and they analyze features of that population and make unfair conclusions based on differences in that general population. So they're very useful. So um, what they, this one, I, I, I haven't read the study in detail, but I've, uh, I gleaned over the abstract. So they looked at Increased, they find an increased prevalence of variants in, in known connective tissue genes in, in, that, in this population over and above the general population. I think that is interesting uh, in that there's, it suggests that there's some gene, gene interaction or some sort of com more complex interplay between these genes that is causing something, um, which Fits with one of the things I said earlier on uh, complex trait, complex traits. Sure. Um, so I think I think there's a lot more that needs to be done here. The one question I would have in this particular study is these these are variants compared to the general population, but are they known to be disease causing variants, or are they just rare variants? If that makes sense, like uncommon genetic variants that aren't necessarily known to cause disease themselves, but are different to the, the normal genetic variant that's there. I think it is that, uh, but uh, which makes sense. It's more of a, it suggests there's a gene interaction effect going on in, in these, this, these kind of gene clusters, that there are certain changes and collection of these genes cause, cause something, perhaps happening more mobility. So it really actually speaks to the, the point on comp, uh, gene gene interactions causing uh, hypermobility. And in terms of other types of genetic testing that, that can be done, like pharmacogenomic yes. testing and other yes. SNP testing, single nucleotide polymorphisms, um, we know that that's quite popular right now, shifting gears for a minute. Um, what should people in general know about that type of testing? Yeah, so I think pharma... I'm a big advocate for pharmacogenetic testing. Let me just explain pharmacogenetic testing. Uh, it's pharmacogenetics is the science of how genetic variations in your body influence how you metabolize drugs. Uh, that that's the kind of one one liner. So it's um, surprising to some people, or but unsurprising to others that 
just as your genetics influences so many other things like your hair color, how tall you are, and eye color, all sorts of other things. When you take when you take a medication, will influence how you respond to that medication. Um, and this science, this is not a new science; it's, it's decades old. Uh, but the clinical use and clinical application has is also not not so that new, but it's certainly newer than the knowledge of it. So nowadays, what people do is you have a baseline profile of your pharmacogenetics, ideally before you need to be on any medication. If and when you need to be on a medication, you know whether, number one, that medication is going to be right for you or going to work for you. Number two, the standard dose that is given to you know, a 30-year-old bodybuilder or a 90-year-old you know, um, lady that weighs you know, 90 pounds or so, which, which is also an interesting um, side, side topic. Um, is that the right dose for you, um, or is it, uh, or do you need to have an increased dose or a decreased dose, right, uh, based on right. genetics? Um, so, uh, a common example: uh, Plavix or Clopidogrel, taken. It's an antiplatelet medication uh, taken for uh, heart attack and stroke. So, millions of people are on Plavix in the in the in, in the US. There is. Um, an FDA black box warning label on the on the label of that this drug that suggests that that says that pharmacogenomic variants and in a certain CYP enzyme in the liver influence how well you metabolize this drug, uh, such that it might not be effective for you, and it's recommended you have you know the, the, that these variants are looked at. That's an FDA black box warning label. That's you know, that's a, that's a, <laughs> It's not, uh, it's not you know, a, side, um, a side note or anything. The vast majority of people on Plavix have never had their, that enzyme. It's a CYP2C19 enzyme. They've never had it checked. So they're on Plavix. Hopefully it's working for them. But we know that up to a third of the population have variants in that gene that it doesn't work for them. That makes that gene. Wow. It doesn't work. So just imagine how many people that might be that are on Plavix that may not be metabolizing it the way they should be. It's kind of scary, actually. That, that's that's mind-boggling. So, so yes. if I'm understanding you correctly, there's a drug that's being commonly used called Plavix that is being yes. used on millions of people. There's a yes. known pharmacogenetic variant that is prevalent in like a third of the population, so a very large percentage of people that, that we have the ability to... Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Multiple variants, excuse me. Yes. That, but we have the ability to, to test for that. But yes. most people have not had that kind of testing. So they might be taking this drug for most of the recommendations following, you know, stent placement or whatever. It might, mm -hmm. be, might be for yeah. a year or even longer. And, and yes. it's a potent drug. And then there are certain implications when it comes to, you know, if they need to have surgery or, you know, something else and taking yes. them off of the drug. And yes. so, wow, that's, that is it's, it's mind boggling. And just, yeah. just to add to the point you made there, you talked about stents, and obviously one of the biggest risks with putting a stent in is stent thrombosis. Um, the studies have been done showing that people who have non-functional pharmacogenetic variants and the CYPC19 variant are significantly increased risk of stent thrombosis if they're, on, if they're put on Plavix because Plavix doesn't have the antiplatelet effect that they're needing to, to prevent it. It's, it, studies are out there, they're done, but it's still, it's still not commonly tested.
it's a, it's, it's a real shame. So are you saying, if I, if I, I just want to make sure I'm hearing you correctly. So are you saying yeah. that if you have that genetic variant and then you get put on Plavix, your risk might actually increase if this, as if you were not on Plavix? A um, stent thrombosis? No, no uh, your, your risk reduction of stent thrombosis being on Plavix is not right. There. Okay, uh, right, right, okay. So, yeah, so, so you should be put on something else that causes an right. effect. That, that, sorry, right. that was the point. Yeah. yeah. So okay, the risk no, that... reduction of that drug that you're, you know, one for, uh, um, you know, second heart attack or two for stent, stent thrombosis that you're, hope, you're hoping to get by taking, you know, taking that pill every morning, you're not getting it. That's, the, right. that, sorry, that was the point I was making, yeah. Sure. No, that makes sense. Yeah. So, so really what it seems to me that pretty much it, any of us that could afford to have this testing done, and I know sometimes it is covered by insurance and sometimes it's not, mm -hmm. but, but that type of testing, it seems like it would make sense for most Population. of us to have that. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. I think it should, you know, I, the way I think it will go, I don't know when, five years, 10 years from now, it will be a population level thing that is uh, hopefully the norm where it's part of the, the prescribing decision-making. Well, sure. let's, let's prescribe this drug. Well, let's make sure it works for this. It's personalized, it's personalized medicine we're getting into or precision medicine, right? So is the right drug for the right patient at the right time. So is it, is it the right drug? Does it match up with their pharmacogenetics or, or does, does it need to be this other drug? And, and um, so that's what hopefully where we get to, but uh, things, things, you know, in healthcare, things tend to move fairly slowly. Sure. Sure. And, and that's a perfect lead into to the last topic that I wanted to cover um, where, where things are not moving so, so slowly. And that's with the um, coronavirus pandemic. And, you know, this has happened uh, quite quickly, actually. And we know that there are a number of people who have had, you know, some of this, um, you know, uh, single nucleotide polymorphism, you know, testing, um, other types of genetic testing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if, you know, we, we see these reports about, you know, it's mostly the elderly that are getting very, very ill and or, you know, dying, yeah. but that sometimes yeah. we see, you know, young, healthy people um, that, have, that have become very ill. And I'm wondering if, you know, is this possibly related to some kind of genetic, you know, variant that, you know, causes them, uh, you know, to be at much higher risk of complications, um, you know, especially in regards to cytokine storm? Um, is, there, is there some explanation there potentially? Yeah, certainly, there, if you think about all of the, you know, the cytokine storm, all of the immune system, underlying all of that, there's, a, there's genetics that decides how your immune system functions. So to answer the question, is there a genetic influence that, that influences how your body responds to a viral illness? Absolutely. And we know that, we know that's there. Um, we know, we actually can see it on a much simpler level if we look at even differences between men and women. I'm going back to that again. It's, it's such an easy example. Um, we know that because of the X chromosome differences in, in women such that cell has either one X chromosome on or the other, so women are um, really a mosaic of two X chromosomes, that, does, um, that changes the, the, the immune system in that 
it's more diverse, uh, which is a good thing to fight infection. So actually, um, uh, in a, um, a neonatal intensive care unit, um, female uh, uh, infants actually do slight, on average, do slightly better than male infants. Um, uh, and then the, one of the reasons that is thought is because they're more diverse, they're thus more uh, adaptive immune system. Uh, it's a sm small, it's not a big difference. It's a very small difference. Uh, and secondly, we know that um, women on average tend to have more autoimmune diseases. Uh, so that, so this, and, and there's other way, right? So it's too much, so right. it's too much different, right? So, so we can, we can apply all of those things to, to this as well. So of course, there's going to be differences. Someone who is ostensibly healthy and doesn't have an obvious problem, they might have some genetic modifier that increases their risk. That's not something practically we can do anything about right now. We can all, only focus on the, I would tell people to focus on the things you can do ensuring sure. your you know, health is uh, um, you know, uh, the best it can be and your immune system is as strong as it can be. Um, you did touch on that interesting paper on the cytokine storm and, and you know, that really seems to cause a rapid deterioration in, in the status of individuals. Um, and I think looking at where it's happening in the long run, um, if you think about the purpose of well, what you know, a cytokine storm—it's a pro-inflammatory response to um, combat the you know the pathogen in this case, right? The problem is it can get to the stage where it's almost like what's you know it's that's the difference between a sniper's bullet and a and you know and, and a carpet bombing, right? So so it's very precise. One is very precise, and one just okay, it gets rid of the you know the the thing you're trying to get rid of but it unfortunately gets rid of everything else so if it, this is happening in the lung it's a massive cytokine storm you're getting destruction of lung tissue and destruction of all the normal gas exchange that you're going to be needing that can actually cause more problems and benefits and I, in fact you know this is more your area than mine i think uh, um when it, um so i'll I'll, I'll maybe defer to you on, on explaining some more <laughs> of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a fascinating, uh, you know, area. And I know you and I are also in, involved in some groups that are very actively involved in uh, discussions about, you know, what yes. potential uh, things could be, could be used. And unfortunately there's not as much science there as, as um, a lot no. of us would, would like, but, there, but yeah. there's enough information that, you know, certainly for, for myself, I know that, that I have uh, made a lot of changes to my, you know, kind of the supplements that I've, that I've been taking um, to try to, you know, make my immune system as, mm -hmm. as robust as possible. But yes. Um, yes. The, the genetic component of that is also very interesting. Yeah. So, okay. Well, very good. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add? And can you let us know where people can find you? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, I, so I have a, a clinic that's based in Florida, North Florida, Jacksonville. Um, normally I see people in person as well as uh, remotely, but right now I think it, it's virtually all remote. And so I am able to do telemedicine consultations for genetic consultations for Ehlers-Danlos and other genetic conditions. Uh, website is atwalclinic.com, A-T-W-A-L clinic.com. Uh, there's an email address if people have inquiries on, on certain things and uh, otherwise um, 
there's uh, we have a blog as well. Then we uh, we lo- I I love education like this. So I have, I think I've done one of these with you, you before, Linda, as well. So we uh, I hope <laughs> I hope you invite me back as well. But I love education. I love uh, spreading the right information and making sure people are informed and able to make their own decisions and, and uh, that help that help best manage their care going forward. Fabulous. And can patients see you from a wide variety of states or do they have to be in the state of Florida? How does that work? I have licensure in multiple states. Okay. Uh, obviously, it's state licensure dependent. Um, sure. And, you know, if there's one good thing that comes out, out, out with all of the this, this horrible um, uh, situation we're in with coronavirus, I think it's understanding the, the power of telemedicine and why we need a big change and how telemedicine is practiced in the US. I completely disagree with this idea that every state uh, is able, should, you have to get licensure in every single state to, um, there needs to be a federal medical license, right? Or, so, or something, right. something that, or federal telemedicine license or something like that that can help. But anyway, that, that I'm, I'm asking, and I realize I'm perhaps asking for too much. But yes, <laughs> to answer your question, it's restricted, it's restricted based on the state uh, and I have to, you know, I have licensure in multiple states. I don't want to say which states because that might, that is changing and it, that, sure. uh, that continues to change as I either ramp up or ramp down some of that. But yes, sure. uh, I, the best thing would, would, would be for them to just ask and we can, we can clarify uh, or they can, or we, we can usually find, find some, some way to, to make, to make it work, whether in person or some other, uh, some other way. Okay. Well, I, I could not agree with you more about the, the um, hopes that I have in terms of making some, some real changes because we, up until now, have been really asking the sickest patients to travel the most distance yeah. to see people that really could help them. So yes. um, a lot can be done via telemedicine. And, um, you know, you and I participate in some groups that, that do some collaboration and some, you know, uh, consultations that, that can benefit patients, but, you know, it needs to be, I think, a lot, a lot broader so that we can help as many people as possible. So, well, it was so fantastic speaking with you and I am so grateful um, for you uh, coming on Bendy Bodies today. Grateful for having me. And uh, like I said, happy to come on anytime. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, you all have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. Today, our guest has been Dr. Paldeep Atwal, board-certified clinical and medical biochemical geneticist and director of the Atwal Clinic for Genomic and Personalized Medicine. Dr. Atwal, thank you so very much for taking the time to share your knowledge with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Please go to bendybodies.org for links to all the episodes and to access the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, leave a review, and consider rating us five stars. Don't forget to subscribe so you will be notified of all new episodes. Feedback is greatly appreciated and can be emailed to bendybodiespodcast at gmail.com. Go to hypermobilitymd.com to sign up for my newsletter. Thank you to Rhett Gill for production and sound editing, to Andrew Savino for composing our original music, and to Jennifer Arsenault for designing the Bendy Bodies website and cover artwork. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Please see your own medical team prior to making any changes to your health care. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. 
This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.